0: Uh, yesterday, Alan gave me a great tour of just the building just because, you know, as preachers, we're always curious to see what other churches doing and how they're approaching it. And I have known Alan for a while, and I knew about his sports background. I got to go into his office and see all that cowboy memorabilia that he decorates his office with. If you go to my office, I surround myself with things that actually give me hope. So, <laughs> So if you came... If you came into my office, on my office wall is a wooden cross. It's about three feet tall. And it's very simple and unornate. But every time I see that cross, I think of a man named Fred Green. Fred Green was a member of my church. Fred was um, a longtime member. Fred had been at the church longer than I had been at the church And Fred was frustrated one day because he didn't think that the new preacher had reached out to him. And he complained to one of my elders. My elders did a great thing and said, have you introduced yourself to Scott yet? Fred said, no, I hadn't. And Fred was the kind of guy that once he realized that he needed to do something, he did it right away. And he came up, and he's the guy that carried a business card. And he put a business card in my hand and said, I'm Fred Green. I'm inviting you over for dinner. And I got to go over to Fred's house and his wife, Lita, and just enjoy a beautiful dinner. And we became incredible friends. It wasn't too much longer, though, that Fred showed up in my office one morning during the weekday. And he wasn't, you could tell by his face, he wasn't in a good place. And he was worried and he was anxious. And this has never happened to me before before and it hasn't happened to me since, where Fred came to me and said, I've just come from Scott and White, and that's the large hospital that's there in Temple. says, I've got a diagnosis of liver cancer. And they've given me a short time to live. And I'm here to plan out my funeral with you. Man, I... <laughs> I don't claim to know a whole lot now, but I was super green back then. And I just started praying, God, what do I do in this moment? And we begin to have a conversation about what Fred wants to see at his funeral. And at some point, I can tell this information is still just kind of pouring down on him and weighing down on him. And he finally looks at me, and he's in a reflective moment, and he just says, Scott, I just hope I've done enough. And what he was saying is, I hope I've done enough to make it to heaven. And Fred, in that moment, was wrestling with the two greatest challenges that face us. And they are simply this. And they come together in this moment. Death and our sin. And he's asking me, As a preacher, I hope I've done enough. Now, if you were in my place on that day, what would you have told Fred? How how do you address somebody that is facing their end of their life and they're asking a question that the big one of death is in front of them and now the big one of sin is in front of them. How do I deal with my sin problem? And I began to wonder how often it was preachers like me that may have confused Fred on what the actual gospel of Jesus is. That he would even need to ask a question like that in that moment. So I want to talk about the gospel for a moment. Then we'll come back to Fred. I want to talk about what is the gospel. Because it's easy to get the gospel confused with a lot of different things. It's easy to mistaken what the gospel is. So often, we'll think the gospel is a set of, thing, of rules that we have. A, a set of requirements that we need to meet. Maybe the gospel is the Ten Commandments. Maybe it's the Old Testament. Maybe you have to memorize the whole Bible. How do you get at the gospel? It's the gospel based on what I've done. What does it mean to obey the gospel? You'll hear that language. So I'm going to go where Paul takes us today, and we're going to break down the gospel. And you need to know that the gospel equals good news. Now, for many of you, that's not, that's not a shocking deal. We've used that phrase before. The gospel means good news, but if, if you would just be patient with me just a few minutes, I'm going to try to unpack that as best I can. Because what that does is that brings up two questions. Why is it news? Why is the gospel news? And then why is it good? What's so good about it? If it's really good, if we're going to really say the gospel is good news, why is it news and what's so good about it? And what we need to understand is the gospel is a word that comes to us. from The the Greek word, we don't need to get too fancy here, but the Greek word is Ungelion. And there's a real meaning behind that. It means a messenger. And the messenger brings a certain kind of news. And he brings good news, but it's a very specific kind. It was a very political message. Any time that a conqueror in that time in the first century, that they conquered a land, they sent word out ahead of them that there's now good news because a new king is in rule. There is a new authority. There is a victory that has been won. And so the message would go out. The, the, the messengers, the evangelists, would go out with the message and proclaim to all the different towns because what you want to do is you want to get the word out. You want the far reaches to know there's good news because you have a new king. And so something different has happened. Then we've got to figure out what's so good about it. And so I'm going to go where Paul goes. And if you have your Bibles open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or if you've got it on your phones, or however you get it, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And as he writes to this church, he he wants them to understand numerous things. And so he has these themes running all through the book. And they really take sort of this culmination in chapter 15. And I'm not going to go through the whole chapter, but I really do encourage you, as you've got some time and opportunity to take some uh, personal study, to spend some time in chapter 15, you'll definitely be blessed for that. But Paul's going to help us understand the answer to these questions of what's the gospel, why is it news, and why is it so good? So he begins this way, and I'm going to jump into verse 3. For I delivered to you as a first importance, okay. Paul's been talking about all of his preaching. He's been talking about all they told them, and he's given them lots of different things. But here's what he calls a first importance: what I also received that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures; that He was buried; that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures and that then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Paul is laying out the gospel. The gospel message is this, that Christ died for our sins, he was buried in a tomb, and then he rose again. Then he attaches that last part to it. He takes that last part because this is news. And he goes to that part about Cephas. Cephas is a different name for Peter. And he says he appeared to Cephas and, or to Peter and then to the others and then to as many as 500. What is Paul doing? Paul is saying this actually happened. Here's the witnesses. You can check it out. You don't spread news that can't be verified. You wouldn't make this kind of claim. And so he's saying this is the gospel. So again, the gospel is not based on the Old Testament. The gospel is not based on the New Testament, to be honest with you. Our Christian faith is not based on the Bible. Now, before you send some emails to Alan, understand what I'm saying. The gospel message and your Christian faith is based on a single Event that actually occurred the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Without that single event, there is no faith. That is the gospel message that we've received. In a week, we're going to celebrate Easter. And I love the point that was made during communion that we celebrate the resurrection every single week. And I love Easter too, because if the whole world kind of looks that direction, we sure want to take an opportunity of that as Christians. But on the very first Easter, I, I heard Alan saying that you're going to have two different services. I didn't hear him say you're going to have a sunrise service. I don't know what you think about sunrise services. I haven't gotten up for one in a long time, honestly. But at the very first Easter... Nobody got up for the sunrise service because nobody was there. I love stealing a line from a guy named Andy Stanley. He says this, why was nobody there? Because nobody expected no body in the tomb. I know, I wish I had written that. It's too good. Nobody was outside the tomb just as the sun was about to come over the horizon and the countdown Ten, nine, eight, seven Jesus walks out of the tomb, triumphant in death, to an audience of zero. No one. But in that moment, the gospel was born. His death, his burial, his resurrection. And so when we talk about the gospel's good news, news is something that happened. If you go into work or you go into school and you're gathered around in conversation, you say, say, did you hear what happened? I've got some news. Something different has occurred. And so the first thing that I want you to understand about the gospel message that Paul is talking about is the gospel is good news about what God has done. The gospel is good news about what God has done. Let me talk about two of those words real quick. Has when Paul says, backing up, he says, For I delivered to you of most importance that which you received. Christ died. He's talking in the past tense. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised. All in accordance with Scripture. This has happened, is what Paul's saying. This is already a victory that has been proclaimed. Proclaimed. A victory that's already been achieved. I know we live in a world where it's super easy now to rewatch sporting events, or to tape delay sporting events, or to DVR, or however you get. But for some of you of a certain age, you'll remember that there was a time when you just couldn't back up live TV; that wasn't like an option. I heard a story. My my mom and dad. My my dad was from. Kentucky. I was born in Kentucky, but we moved to Texas as fast as we could, I promise. But so if you're from Kentucky, you understand anything about Kentucky, you're a fan of one of two different sports teams. The University of Kentucky or the other junior college that's in Louisville. And he was an ardent Wildcat Kentucky fan. And so mom, when she kind of married into that, they became one. So dad was in the Air Force, and so he was stationed at Wichita Falls. Again, this is back in the day when you you didn't have internet, you didn't have anything like that. They're watching a UK basketball game. What they didn't know was that the basketball game was tape delayed. It had already been played. They've got some friends over that are also UK fans. Mom gets up, goes into the kitchen to get some snacks. The phone rings. Back in the day, the phone was actually attached to the wall. Hard to believe, I know. She takes the phone call. She's busy with one of her friends that happened to already realize that the game had been played. They they were watching the game, didn't know that it was tape delay. When when she left the room, it was halftime, Kentucky was way down. So she answers his phone. She's telling, yeah, we're watching the game. They said, oh, well, you're going to love the ending of it because Kentucky wins. (laughs) Mom then realizes the tape delay game. Mom goes back into the kitchen, doesn't tell anybody about the phone call, and says, does anybody want to make a bet on the game? (laughs) they all make a bet and she cleans up. (laughs) Because the victory had already been won. You don't make a bet on a game that you're unsure about. But when you know the outcome, you live like it, right? It changes how you live. This is about what God has done not only is about what God has done, it's God that's done it. We are not the creators of our own salvation. That, that's what hurt me so much by Fred's question. I hope I have done enough. It, that breaks my heart because I'm afraid that Fred had heard enough teaching from guys like me that convinced them that there's something that you've got to get done. If you just worked a little harder, gritted your teeth a little bit more, cleaned up your act some more, polished yourself up, put on a fresh shirt, whatever it is, somehow that maybe then you can draw God's attention. God has all the verbs when it comes to your salvation. I... I'm grateful when somebody says, and they tell their, their testimony, and they'll tell their story, they'll say, and then I found Jesus. I, I'm, not, I'm not ragging on that, but let's deal with what the truth is. The truth is that you did not find God. God has been in pursuit of you viciously the entire time, and in the moment of your greatest sin, He captures you and redeems you. What you're doing is you're receiving that, but that's a passive act as opposed to some aggressive act, some assertive act that I'm trying to do to work my way into God's good graces. You need not show up on Judgment Day with your resume in hand, it won't go well. There's some of us that we're still trying to work off past mistakes. We act like we've got a rap sheet in heaven. God has done this. This is the good news. He goes on. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And if you underline or highlight things in your Bible, and I definitely encourage you to do that, do this. The firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man, by man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You see what he does there? He brings the two problems together, death and our sin. And he, does, he has this idea says there's these first fruits. He says Jesus is the first fruit. Jesus is the first fruit in the fact that just like you would have a harvest, a harvest, if you examine the first fruits, it tells you what the harvest is going to be like. It's going to be a good season. It's going to be a bumper crop because we can tell we're getting the first fruits. What God did in Jesus is the first fruits that he wants to do us all. What is awaiting you is not simply fluffy clouds and a disembodied spirit someday in heaven. I'll confess, and maybe you're like me, maybe you're more spiritual than I am, but when I was growing up and everybody described heaven, it was going to be a disembodied spirit on fluffy clouds, Singing worship songs forever, you know, I I just pictured Jesus loves me, you know, 12,000 times in a row. It didn't sound that exciting. The promise of Scripture, though, is that Jesus experienced a resurrection. So will we. That's what Scripture is promising. And Jesus is the first fruits of that. That's why it says, just like in Adam, just like in Christ, so all will be made alive that's what the hope is that's the reason that Christian funerals are not goodbye, they are see you soon and so what I'd have you understand also then is that the gospel is good news about what God will do and there's a resurrection waiting for you and me. Not because we're so special. Not because I'm so good, because I'm not. But because of who God is. And he also mentions this Adam. And he says that Adam was there. And he says that because of the sin that came with Adam, if you remember the, the gospel story or the, the story of the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve are in the perfect place, they have all the comforts. There is no burden that they are experiencing. They don't experience traffic. They don't experience Wi-Fi breaking out on you. They don't experience brokenness. They don't experience divorce. They don't experience addictions. It's all perfect. They are as whole and as complete as anybody had ever been. Well, you knew we'd messed that up. They were told one thing. Do not eat of a tree in the middle of the garden. that is labeled the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet Satan comes in there, and he tempts them, and they cannot resist. And so so here's God's first two children, and they've only got one rule, and they end up breaking that rule, and God shows up after they break that rule, and they begin to blame each other of the rule. I mean, this is just like having kids. That's why God punished them and gave them their own kids after that. But sin came into the world, and with it came a sense of decay and deterioration. And so now things that we know, things that we love begin to deteriorate. For a while there when we're young, it's easy to believe that this isn't happening to us, but we all know that the mirror doesn't lie. And every morning you get up and you see the decay more and more. And sometimes the decay comes faster in a form of a disease. But we sense that. And though we try to exercise it away and eat right and make it all um, as best as possible, we know that the decay and the curse is still coming. And so Paul is reminding us that we shall be made alive. And so he finishes out uh, what God will do. He says, For this is the perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written. And he quotes a poet here. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. On that day, when... Fred asked me, I prayed hard. And I'm telling you, I'm not that smart. But God gave me some words in that moment. And I said, Fred, Fred was a woodworker. I said, Fred, I want you to build a cross. I have no idea why I said that. And he said, what? I said, I want you to build a cross, because every time you see that cross, I want you to think about the hope that you have in Jesus Caught him off guard. Caught me off guard. So Fred goes from that moment, and he goes home, and he fashions this beautiful cross. And Fred put the cross in his living room. And then as people came over to visit as his health began to deteriorate, he moved into basically being pretty sedentary and sitting in a large recliner. And as people would come visit, he'd talk to them and say, Have you seen my cross? And he would talk about the hope he had. And then as he began to cheer it even more, they put a hospital bed in the living room. And as he's laid out in the hospital bed, people would come for a visit and pray with him, encourage him, have you seen my cross? And he kept telling people the story of this cross. When Fred finally passed away, and it wasn't long, at his funeral, we gave Fred the last word. Next to his casket up there, we put that cross, the one that now hangs in my office. And we put a spotlight on it. And the closing of the funeral was a song, Amazing Grace. Because because the power of the cross, the tomb, and the resurrection, Jesus solves the death problem and the sin problem. There is something more out there. Christopher Columbus discovered the new world. Prior to that, Spain had a motto, non plus ultra, and it means no more beyond. And that was, a model, that was a motto that shaped all they thought. They thought there was nothing more to sail beyond Spain. Until in 1492, Christopher Columbus sails and discovers the new world and suddenly destroys that worldview and ushers in the age of Renaissance. There's a certain statue that they built to Christopher Columbus in Valadeso, Spain. And this is a picture of that statue. You see Christopher Columbus standing on top of the world, and then there's the motto that used to be non plus ultra going around the world. If you zoom in on the statue, you'll see that there's a lion ripping the word non off the statue because their motto made no sense anymore because there is more beyond. The gospel is this. We serve the Lion of Judah that looked death in the face and rips off the no more. And now there is more beyond. That's the hope that we have. That's the hope that Fred Green had. That's the confidence that every time I stand beside a casket and do a funeral for one that believed and professed the faith in Jesus, that we know that it is a see you soon because there is something more beyond. And aren't we grateful? If you would, let me stand with me, please. Let me pray a blessing over you. If you would bow with me. Father, gathered in this sacred place, it's holy because you're present. We stand on holy ground. And we're so grateful that you are willing to die instead of live without us. So, Father, thank you for the gospel. Father, for anyone that's hearing this message that feels the need to work harder at it because they think that by actions, by performance, that they're somehow going to capture your attention or increase your love, Father, Father, would you speak to their heart right now saying that you sent your son to seal that deal to grab that victory because there's a new king with new authority that rules now Father may we live gospel lives based on the truth that Jesus went to the cross buried in a tomb and walked out alive. Father, I pray for anyone that struggles with anything, that you would convict them with the power that can go into the tomb and and resurrect the dead body of Jesus, that they know they can come into their life, that you can come into the marriage that's struggling and resurrect it, that you can come into the one struggling with addiction and resurrect it, You can come to the one that seems to have lost their way and life doesn't have any hope, that you can resurrect that, Father. If you can do that for the body of Jesus, you're promising you can do that for all because your power knows no end. Father, thank you that there is more beyond. In the name of Jesus we pray and we praise. Amen.